Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick there, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets, and say, The very dust of your city, which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And now of our sermon text this morning. Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see, and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear, and have not heard it. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may he add his blessing to it. Well, this is part two of our sermon, titled, When the Kingdom Comes. We saw that our sermon theme was, When God's Kingdom Comes, it declares peace for his people, but woe for his enemies. And we looked last week at verses 1 through 16, which says, which there we saw that God's kingdom gathers the Lord's harvest and warns of God's wrath for rebels. Now we will see also that God's kingdom empowers and enlightens its people over worldly and satanic power and knowledge. We are given power through Christ that conquers evil, sin, death, and the devil essentially is what we are looking at in our verses this morning. So let's look together at verses 17 through 19, where we see that the 70 that were sent out by Christ, kind of in addition to the 12 going out two by two in every place where Jesus was set to go. And if you look through the rest of the book of Luke, you'll see Jesus, his face is set on Jerusalem. Everything now is about this return journey uh, from you know Luke chapter 9 in there all the way to his crucifixion, essentially. He's journeying back to Jerusalem. It's the final um, mission, if you will. But along the way, he's going to do a lot of teaching and healing and proclaiming of the kingdom, and many things are going to happen. But this is his journey, his destination now. He's winding, weaving his way back to Jerusalem. And the 70 are sent out as heralds of the gospel, the kingdom of God, in every city where he himself is about to go to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. Now, we see in verse 17 the excitement of the 70, for they are able to come, or to go, and they say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. There is 
success in their ministry. It is the empowerment of Christ, the faith of the 70. And if you remember just a little bit ago in Luke chapter 9, the 12 were unable to drive out the demons and then rebuke somebody for going about doing mighty works that was not with them. But these 70 are having success, uh, not because they're inherently superior, but because they are trusting in the Lord uh, who empowers them and also enlightens them to proclaim the truth of God. And what does that bring about? Well, victory over worldly and satanic power and knowledge. So the power and knowledge of Christ and his people overcomes the worldly satanic power and knowledge. Really, you could probably say the satanic power and knowledge of this world. That might be a clearer way to, to put it. Of this world. It, God's kingdom empowers and enlightens its people over the satanic power and knowledge of this world. They're being driven out, the demons and so on now. And they do this in the name of Christ. It says, even the demons are subject to us in your name. All the power and glory goes to him. And again, this is not, you know, Jesus rebuke you in the name of Christ, I expel you demon. It's not a magical hocus pocus incantation. It's not a phrase that's sort of a, a secret password that drives out the demons. But again, it is the people commissioned by Christ, trusting in the power and authority given to them from Christ, knowing it's his power, saying it is Christ who rebukes you. It is Christ who we're an extension, we're an arm of Christ. And that's, that's the understanding that these 70 had. They understand that they are an extension yeah, of Christ himself. And of course, we all are in our own capacities as the body of Christ. Well, Jesus then says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And this is his response to them when they return. He says, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Well, when did Jesus see Satan fall like lightning from heaven? As you may imagine, um, a statement like this does have some various understandings and interpretations of it that, um, to one degree or another, can harmonize altogether. But it does not seem, in the context, that Jesus would here be speaking of Satan's fall from heaven when he first sinned as Lucifer, um, because that happened long ago, and he fell to the earth and has been demon-possessing through his demons and so on people for thousands of years at this point that Christ is speaking. And so it does not seem that this would be the reference of Christ falling like lightning from heaven when he was first cast down to earth, but rather it is an expression or a phrase to indicate that Christ is seeing Satan's power being brought down, being brought low. His exalted power and authority, which he has had on earth after being cast out of heaven, is now being smashed up, broken up by the almighty power from heaven, Christ himself. Satan was the ruler of this world, but now the ruler of this world is cast out, John twelve thirty one tells us. We know the cross is the death blow to Satan, right? He, that, that's the promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, Satan's head, and that happens at the cross. 
But it is not to say that it already in Christ's ministry coming to earth and driving out the demons, that there's not already a suffering that Satan undergoes. If you think about Christ going to the cross on his way up there, he spat upon, there's a crown of thorn upon his heads, upon his head. There's there's much suffering he does even in preparing for that, praying to the Lord, crying out to him, if this cup shall pass from me. Well, you can, in a weird way, perhaps, maybe odd to put it this way, but Satan, too, is already wriggling and, and dreading. You know, Christ, ultimately, for the joy set before him, endures the cross. Well, Satan and the demons of darkness, in absolute fright and fear, anytime Christ comes, it is not our time yet. What have we to do with you, son of man, etc., etc.? They're already suffering. They're already being bound. They're already being crushed. And so we see this already in our text. So Satan is not yet dead, if you want to put it that way. But the wound of the cross and the, the wound of the ministry of Christ on earth is mortal to Satan. It will be the blow that kills him. He's now dying from what Christ has accomplished in his death, resurrection, and ascension into glory. And here in Christ's ministry, and sending out the 70 and the demons being driven out, he's already being wounded. He's already being defeated. The Lord is continuing to crush Satan under the feet of the church, his people. Uh, Romans 16.20 tells us that, that the Lord will soon crush Satan under your feet, speaking of God's people, the church, and so as the body of Christ... Satan still bound now, but we know First Peter and so on, he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's not as if Satan is gone and done away with. He's still active, but he's mortally wounded. And you might say, well, man, how can somebody be mortally wounded for, you know, 2,000 plus years? Well, with Christ... One day is as a thousand years with the Lord. One day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Satan is no human being. He is a spirit, spiritual being in that regard. He was an angel. The Lord's work, the Lord's timing is different than ours. He, the Lord, is eternal. So Satan really is bound, defeated in many ways, and wounded mortally, but is bleeding out, if you use that expression. He's going to die. The work is already accomplished. It's a certainty. It's a fate accompli. There's no turning it back. There's no way in which Satan can bind the wound that has been dealt to him. And so he's desperate. He's, he's angry. And he goes about as a roaring lion to see whom, whom and how many he can devour before he's finally cast into the lake of fire, the second death. Satan's power is broken firstly and foremostly by those, well, not by them, but through the ones who are enabled by Christ and his spirit to repent. Right? His power over sinners' hearts is shattered, and that's the ultimate power. Those made in the image of God on earth, if Satan's driving the horse and you're dead in your sins, that's an almighty power, if you want to put it that way, over you. Not almighty as in God, but a mighty, strong power ruling you, a power toward you which is almighty, which you cannot overcome, Satan in your own sinful heart. But when that power is broken, and there's new holy affections poured into you by the Spirit, and you are born again and declared righteous through Christ, well now the kingdom has come to you, and its power and its enlightenment through the word of God can conquer and will conquer satanic power and knowledge of this world. We see the decrease in demonic possession since Christ's coming. We see the growth of Christ's kingdom and many uh, all over the world being born again and serving the Lord. And as scripture tells us, indeed, the gates of hell do not prevail, do not overcome Christ and his church. So we see Satan and his armies slipping and tying. But it's occurring, it's happening over, at this point, thousands of years since Christ has come. It may well be thousands and thousands of years yet to come. And you can, again, look at the Lord's timing and his ways are not our ways. His time frame is not our time frame. If we want all this to be signed, sealed, and delivered, wrapped up in our lifetime, well, imagine how many other people wish that. The apostles, the disciples wish that. Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to us? 
Jesus says it's not your time to know the day and the hour, etc., etc. It's been 2,000 plus years since this. It's could be very well that much longer, despite what many dispensationalists may claim and have been claiming for generations and it not coming to pass. The kingdom is going to grow and spread like a little seed into a great big tree. And though we see that in some places to some degree, we see a lot of sin, a lot of wickedness, a lot of thorns and briars, the curse abounding, or at least remaining in many places as well. And so we can take from God's word throughout it the long approach, the long game. We can think in terms of many generations and hundreds and even thousands of years to serve the Lord and to build up things that are strong and will overcome him, overcome the devil through the power of Christ. Well, Jesus in verse 19, he gives the 70 power over serpents and scorpions. Uh, these would be, of course, creatures associated with Satan. He literally enters the serpent. Uh, later, you have Paul shaking, um, I believe it's a scorpion. No, it's a snake off of him. Uh, but these are associated with the works of darkness. These are associated with the powers, uh, the prince of the power of the air, the evil one. So to be protected from that literally would be a, a sign that these are agents of light, apostles of Christ, apostles of God, because the animals, the, the creatures that are known and associated with the devil whom he uses and the poison that is in them, uh, they are protected from, showing Christ's protection and choosing of them for this sacred mission. But it also points to the disciples and for the disciples of protection from Satan and the works of darkness himself. Satan is that greater poison. It's the source, right? If, if the scorpions and serpents are the sign of that, Satan is the source of this great poison and wickedness. But again, the apostles are delivered from that power to conquer it, to drive it out. And we in Christ today are, as God's people, his body as well through fighting against sin and Satan and becoming increasingly righteous and holy. So this shows the apostles' authority from Christ over evil. And I'm, I'm, I'm using this 70 loosely as the apostles or disciples because they too are sent out along with the 12 apostles. Well, then you come to verses 20 through 24, and you see that the chief blessing of Christ's kingdom, coming even to his 70, that are specially handpicked and vetted, as we saw in our sermon uh, a couple weeks ago, this chief blessing isn't that they're given power to restrain the demons, work miracles, or even preach the kingdom, but that they themselves are redeemed inwardly. May that be a lesson for each and every one of us. Our greatest blessing is not health and wealth and prosperity. It is not even to be a minister of the gospel preaching the kingdom of God. Woe to the one who preaches the kingdom of God, but yet is not written in the Lamb's book of life, who is not an uh, inheritor, a citizen of that kingdom. The judgment is so much greater and severe in hell for such a person. Woe to all such ministers and elders who take on the name of the Lord upon their lips to proclaim it to the people of God, and yet they themselves do not belong to the people of God. But for the ones who do belong to the Lord, there is no greater blessing. Eternal life, victory over the grave, over Satan, over sin. Not just victory over the negative, the evil, the pain and suffering and sorrow, but victory unto the Lord to worship him, adore him, and serve him, and be with him face to face in all eternity, basking in his glory, proclaiming his glory, and serving him in the light of his glory. There is no greater blessing. And, and what other blessing could we possibly want? Whatever pain and suffering we face in this life, and it's real, and it's hard, and the Lord never makes light of it, even the smaller sufferings. We all suffer according to our capacities and the lot that Christ has placed us in. But if we live 70 or 80 or 90 years, the suffering in light of eternity is a light and momentary affliction, affliction for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know from Matthew 7, verses 21 and 23, that many cast out demons in the name of the Lord and said, and Christ said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you who practice lawlessness, I never knew you. Judas was empowered 
and enlightened in some way to cast out demons and proclaim the kingdom of God. Quite possibly some among the 70 were proclaiming the word of God and not truly converted or born again, were inwardly wicked and evil. And the thing that is most important is our salvation. The signs and wonders in these ways were temporary, as it were. I'm not saying that there is never a demon-possessed person today. I'm not saying that there's never a time where a minister of the Word of God would, in the name of the Lord, uh, pray, call out to the Lord that this person would be delivered from that demonic oppression or possession. Nothing would indicate that there's no reason to say that that cannot and does not happen. But it is to say that Christ is bound, or not Christ is bound, Satan is bound, Christ has come, the works of darkness are driven out, and these were given particularly as signs and wonders in the first century church, and for every subsequent generation, because we see it written in God's word and told that to us. And if we have faith that God's word is true, and that all that is written here is real factual history, who are we to then say, well, I will only believe it if I see a demon cast out now? Right? That's like the rich man and Lazarus saying, send someone from the dead for my brothers, and then they'll believe. And Jesus says, no, they have the law of Moses. If they will not hear him or the prophets, neither will they hear one, though he rise from the dead. The word of God, that is more potent and powerful than a trick, than a miracle, than a sign or wonder. The sign and wonder is the lesser thing. Salvation in Christ is the ultimate thing. Now, there is also a difference when you look at the text here in verse 19, or sorry, verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You may even see it. It may not come out here, but some would say that based on the, the Greek and the context and everything here, that is Christ saying you all do have your names written in heaven or that you will have your names written in heaven or that you would have your names written in heaven. Rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Is he saying all of them have their names written in heaven? Or is he saying rejoice rather that this would be the case for you, right? At the end of the day, it makes very little difference. And I think Christ certainly, as Paul addresses the churches as the elect, the chosen of God, the saints, he can speak to the 70 as a group and say, your names are written in the book of life. He could say the same of the 12. And even though it wasn't actually the case for Judas individually, Christ is speaking at the level of the 12 or the 70, and it's true collectively, right? Just as it's true that God saves households on the 10,000 foot view of that, particularly as Parents and pastors and churches are being faithful, covenantally faithful, serving the Lord, raising the children for a nurture of the Lord. At that view, the vast majority of children will be converted and saved of Christian homes, even though they're very nitty-gritty details. We may see some, sadly, who are departing and apostatizing from the faith from the fold. power, of course, is again from Christ. Even if there's Judases among them, it makes no difference because it's not the power of the disciple, but the power of Christ working through them. Just as Christ used King Saul and others for a season for a special mission, and then they departed and his spirit left them. Well, we go on and we see that Jesus himself is rejoicing in verses 21 and following here, that the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, and see the Trinitarian rejoicing or prayer, if you want to put it this way, of Jesus. Jesus, in the Spirit, comes to the Father and prays to him, who is the Lord of heaven and earth. He praises him that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Well, the wise, the prudent, would be in Christ's day there, the Pharisees and scribes and philosophers and so on, who really did know the word of God well, 
insofar as they had knowledge of it, they studied it, they could ace a test upon it. Uh, you think of like you know, trivia, Jeopardy, that kind of thing. Um, they would do very well and have a lot of head knowledge of God's word, but a heart knowledge of God's word is not less than head knowledge, but it is more than that. It is knowing it inwardly and truly and salvifically and being humbled by the word of God and seeing above all the gospel of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, paying and atoning for sin, giving us new life and giving us the call to serve him and serve one another. That they completely missed. They inverted, they twisted. They had the knowledge of the doctrinal pieces, but not how the saw anything of how it really fit together properly. And they turned it into a self um, congratulating word rather than a word of humble service and obedience to the Holy God needing salvation from their own unholiness. Well, in a way, Christ chides his 70 by saying they need to rejoice more that their names are written in, in heaven than the gifts are given to drive out the demons. But just the same, it is clear, these disciples had a sincere faith in general and rejoiced in that and actually came and left all to follow him as many refused, as we saw at the end of chapter 9 there. And so these poor, base, untaught persons of the world are those whom God is bending or tilting his electing grace toward. Now you might put your hand up in protest and say, well, I thought God did not um, do that. I thought God was no respecter of persons. I did not think that God elected based on anything foreseen in this or that person. It's sheer grace. And so being poor does not qualify you for grace any more than being rich, does it? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. It does, based on what God's word says. But then we got to understand how one is poor, how one is rich. How did that come about? Was that a foreseen thing? Merely known that XYZ person would be poor and needy and destitute. And so God says, ah, I'm sorry for that person. Or rather, did God foreordain everything that comes to pass, including poverty and hardship and on the flip side, the, those haughty, proud, lifted up and exalted by unrighteous means, etc., etc. What, which is the truth? Well, if we're good Bible-believing Calvinist Christians, we know the answer to that. We know that those the Lord sets high, the Lord brings low. The Lord raised up Pharaoh precisely to show his own power over Pharaoh, to show that he would humble Pharaoh to the dust by elevating the lowly, least numbered people of Israel. That's what he says to Israel. That's what he says to Pharaoh. He made Pharaoh high to bring him low by one who was low, ultimately Israel. And ultimately Israel, if you will, is Christ himself who was brought down low, humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross, and first humbled himself by becoming mere man in the likeness of sinful flesh, born in a manger stall of no reputation, of no noble birth, and we've been saying this time and time again, but it is here to underscore the point. Through Christ, the God-man, he topples the religious authorities of the day. He overcomes the secular powers of the day through his teaching, through his miracles, through his cross and subsequent resurrection and ascension back up into glory. The weak things of the world God uses to overcome the strong things, not primarily or first and foremostly because he has a soft spot in his heart, a weak spot, you could almost say, for the weak things of the world. No, rather, this demonstrates his glory all the more profoundly. That's why, Paul can say, and others, that his strength, God's strength, is made perfect in weakness, in my weakness. And so we, we're not called to be weak. We're not called to be poor and beggarly. We're not called to pursue that, is what I'm trying to say. We're not called to not seek to teach and to preach with eloquence and with skill. We're called to that throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. We're not called to be bums and to be stupid as if that's virtue. It's, it's sin. It's wickedness. When, it's, when, when our ignorance and our lack of eloquence and our lack of ability to do anything 
is due to her own laziness or slothfulness, our refusal to be fruitful and multiply, that's sin. That's not the poor and weak that God is going to exalt. Or if he does, he will exalt them by calling them to repentance over such things. But the humble poor, those convicted of sin, of no reputation or estate, God is often pleased to elevate and exalt. And at the same time, we know that there are many who, through Christ, may become, in this world, rich and wealthy. And that's a blessing, too, to be used for God and his kingdom. And so, yes, God tilts his electing grace toward those whom he has chosen to maximize his glory. And it wasn't that he foresaw this person would become poor or be poor or be destitute. He predestined or he foreordained that they would be such. So it's not something virtuous in them. It's all part of his plan to magnify his glory. We also know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 28, and James 2, 5, there too, that riches, wealth in this world are not something that we necessarily should seek after in the sense of living and consuming ourselves for. That's greedy for gain. That can be actually detrimental to our spiritual life. Even if we get riches in a righteous way, sometimes that can be detrimental to our spiritual well-being. God has chosen many poor of this world to be rich in faith so that our boast is only in him, in the Lord. This has always been God's pattern. David defeats Goliath. And as we said, Deuteronomy 7, 7, God tells Israel, you're not chosen because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. There's no glory in them. There's no glory in Christ on earth. Yet, Christ and his people Israel, we are exalted unto glory above all things in the Lord. Now, Calvin's ministry, John Calvin, parallels this. It, it, it's a picture of this, and of course it would be, because Christ used, the Lord used Calvin in a mighty way, but Calvin in himself was really no mighty man. In fact, there's, I don't think I've read it, but um, Steve Lawson, the pastor, has a book, um, maybe I have read it, I can't remember, but it's, it's called The Mighty Weakness of John Knox, right? the founder of Presbyterianism and so on. I'd say read it, it's a good book, but I, I, now I can't remember if I've read it or not, but it, it, the idea is behind that. And going back to John Calvin and his ministry, I was listening to uh, some lectures given to some pastors in training, some seminary students, uh, by Dr. Richard Gamble, who is in the Reformed Presbyterian uh, denomination. And he, Gamble, is an expert on Calvin. And he really gave a, a riveting summary of Calvin's life and some things that I was not aware of as well. Did it all in about 30 minutes or less. And then he goes in to explain some of his uh, Calvin's theology and so on. But Gamble sets the stage of 16th century life that, that, that Calvin and the other reformers of that early time were, were born into. There's no, of course, modern conveniences, no indoor uh, plumbing. The, 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 the waste pots were dumped right out the windows onto the streets. People would get sick from that, from other things. Gamble noted that the bubonic plague, apparently that or something very much like that, was still every 30 years or so make waves through um, the people. And so many of them would perish, would die every 30 years. So either in your, really, if you lived long enough, it would come in your lifetime. Uh, and certainly would come, if not in your lifetime, in your uh, parents' lifetime. It, there would always be living memory of the plague coming through and wiping out many people. Many mothers died in childbirth. Many children died while being born. And that's something that always strikes me. You read, you know, the Puritans or uh, some of the Reformers and how many lost children or wives to... Well, the curse of childbirth, the curse of the pain and suffering that is there. And praise God for the modern provisions and cleanliness and health standards and medicines that we have to reduce that today. Gamble noted that to be able to even have meat to eat is very rare in that time. So people are just looking for their next meal and it's often not coming with meat. We eat like kings compared to them every day. 90% of the people are illiterate. They're just trying to find the next meal. 
They cannot read the, 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 the Roman Catholic Church, the Latin mass services are all said in Latin, a tongue only known to the scholars. And so the people, they can't read Bibles by and large, even if they can manage to get one, um, which itself would have been quite expensive and difficult. And then they, they, the only other means they would have to hear God's word, the proclamation of it, is done in a language that they do not know, do not understand. And God was not giving them some gift of understanding a language that they did not know. And so this is a situation that they find themselves in, that Calvin is in. And so Gamble says that Calvin was essentially an evangelist to Geneva. The need there was great. He, Calvin, was originally trained to be a lawyer, not a priest or minister. He wanted to read, study, write, be a young scholar, and was that. But then William Farrell, another reformer who was full of zeal for the Lord, saw the needs uh, of Geneva and, and really of the whole land, and he persuaded Calvin to help to come there and to minister to the people of God. And it took him two years of arguing with Calvin over this and basically tells Calvin in the end that the Lord is going to strike you down, Calvin, if you do not come and help. And so that finally kind of shook Calvin up and the Lord used that to convict him to go there. Well, eventually Calvin and Pharaoh are kicked out of their own city. Um, Calvin has to leave in haste because that's they didn't give him much time to go. What happens? Well, he can't take any of his writings and his works with him in his home, so that's lost. He's riding on his horse with a few things that he does have. The horse falls, drowns in a river. He escapes with his life out of the cold waters. But then he has nothing except the few clothes on his back. Everything, food, whatever he had with the horse was now gone, including the horse. So he has absolutely nothing at this point in time. And as Gamble would say, it doesn't get much better for Calvin from that point. Uh, this is just one of those things that I was not aware of, or if I was, I'd long forgotten. You know, we don't know always a lot of what Calvin read or wrote because one of his jobs later on was to provide for the widows um, that would come back to them in, uh, in Geneva, I believe. Well, why would there be so many widows? Well, one third of the pastors that would be you know, trained by Calvin and others would, that would go into France... France being Calvin's hometown, home area, and he's exiled from, he's told to leave and not come back to. One third of the pastors sent in there would be executed by assassins in their sleep. And so their wives would, you know, wake up, find their husbands dead, or the commotion of the assassin killing the husband. And so it was just, it was known, it was built into the system that if you're going to train, you're going to go, and a third of you are going to die. But don't worry about your wife and children because we'll take care of them. I mean, just, just imagine the context of being a Christian in this sort of setting, and yet the faithfulness of the people. Oh, the mega churches that we have today and the garbage that they promote. They would not be doing that. And I think that day, God willing, not that severe, but increasingly... Being a Christian openly among various quarters is going to be a negative thing, and I think with that, we're going to learn more and more the true church from the false church. But anyway, one of Calvin's job was to provide for these widows that would return, and so he had to purchase um, linens, bed bedding, uh, for the widows that would, would flee persecution and, and seek provision. But he didn't have enough money to, to buy these things. So what did he have to do? What did Calvin have to do? Well, he'd have to take a book off his shelf, sell it, use that money to get the linen. And if there was any money left over to you know, buy back some of his books or something, sometimes it'd be gone already. So he, all he wanted was to be this young scholar reading and studying. And God absolutely said, no, you're going to be convicted by Will Ferrell, not the comedian, but the reformer. You're going to go, you're going to minister in Geneva, you're never going to have citizenship even in Geneva, which I did not realize that, but he never had citizenship there, even though it's called Calvin's Geneva. So he is this sort of wandering pilgrim, has no place in his own hometown in France and so on. This was his life. He doesn't get to keep his books that he wanted. 
Eventually, he marries a woman, Idolette. I believe she's in her 40s, or about, about 40, when they marry. And even then, they she conceives with Calvin, has children, but they all die in infancy. She did bring three children into the marriage. One of them fornicates with uh, some of the students that Calvin and Idolette host in their home, and, and basically this she's banished. That's, that was, the, I believe, the punishment at the time is from the land, and so there's this great grief from his uh, stepdaughter there, and all their own children die. They're only married nine years. The last few years of that nine-year marriage to Calvin, Idolette herself is quite sick. She dies when she's only 49. I believe Calvin dies at the age of 55 later. Calvin, in that regard, was no mighty man, no riches, no honor, but look how he is honored now. Even throughout history, he's honored as the great theologian of the Reformed faith. But on earth, he had no wealth, he had no riches, he had no prosperity, he had no ease, he had no comfort. We, even in our trials and sicknesses and illnesses, have so much more comfort than he ever had, yet let's be honest, we'll all probably be used so far less than Calvin ever was, and the eternal riches that Calvin will have in comparison to us in glory will be light years apart. <laughs> the Lord chose men like Calvin or Augustinian monks like Martin Luther to be mighty for him. Christ's apostles, as we know in our text, the 70, the 12, they will be sent out, they will suffer great things for Christ. They too like Calvin, or I guess Calvin, we should say like them, go to the towns without money bag or sack, just pleading with the people house to house or staying in a house for their provisions, trusting the Lord to provide. And no, we don't have that precise commission as God's people today, but we should all have something for sure of that faith in Christ today, that he will provide, that he will bless, that he will give us what we need to serve him as a church, as families, as individuals. And so stop fretting and worrying so much, and I am preaching to myself first and foremost in this. And I'm preaching, of course, to you all as well. Will we go on? Verse 22. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. We see the authority of Christ, the power that he has to empower and enlighten his people over the works of darkness of this world. No one knows the Son, who the Son is except the Father, and, the Fa and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So here we see Christ's unity in his divinity with the Father, their perfect knowledge and communion with one another. And lo and behold, the great blessing that we have that we too enter into this eternal Trinitarian love of God, the Godhead, through the Son and whom the Son wills to reveal him. It is not our will, it is God's will, it is Christ's will to reveal to the elect, to his people, the Father, the eternal God, whom no other has ever known eternally, now is willed to be revealed in the Son to his elect people the unknown, eternal God. So, 1 Corinthians 2-3 through does say that God speaks true wisdom to those who are spiritually mature. We don't stay ignorant. None of this is a call, as we said, to stupidity. We just take light God's word and study. Also, note that the Son is by no means inferior to the Father. The Father and Son are one. The intimate knowledge each has of the other shows that Christ is eternally the triune God. But notice that these things that have been hidden, notably the glory of Christ and his kingdom through his work, his message, his miracles, and the apostles taking that message to the peoples, this means that the Son himself is willing to reveal the Father to these people. What a blessing and what a curse to reject Christ and his kingdom which is a full revelation of God himself, clothed in his Son, seen through eyes enlightened by the Spirit. 
The, fa the Father delivers all things to the Son, that is, the Son, Jesus Christ, as the God-man, fully God and fully man. We looked at that in our study on Thursday. For eternally, the Son, as God, had all things. God does not change. He does not withhold, then later give to himself. But we see that Christ's intimate communion as fully God and fully man with the Father and his willingness to reveal to the Father, to the Father's elect people, the Father to his people. The Father is being revealed to us through Christ, through his word. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That cannot be said enough. We know the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, preeminently through Christ, the word made flesh. Because it's true of the Spirit, too. They're all one. You've seen Christ. You've seen the Father. You know God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This eternal knowing of the Godhead, within the Godhead, is something man now, as creatures, enters into in a real sense. Because we're in union. If we are elect, if we're in union with the Son, and if the Son has willed, therefore, he has willed to reveal to us God Almighty. We're made in the image of God. We're made to image God. That's what it means to be made in his image. To be made in the image of God means that we are to image him, to be like him, to be a mirror reflecting his glory. We were not made for ourselves. How can we reflect the Lord Almighty unless we know him? How can we do it? I mean, I can think of, of, of actors who are given a script of a character and a bunch of details about it, and they, they sort of enter into this mold of this character and this story. You have to get all these details right. But if they're never handed the script, if they're never given the information, and they said, you know, act like, um, what was the name of the guy, Belushi and, and, and the Blues Brothers? Well, what is that? What does that mean? We, we don't have a clue. <laughs> yeah, it's a random example, you know. Act like Spider-Man, but you've never heard of Spider-Man. You don't have any background to him. How can you, you know, you're going to be this guy slinging, you know, slinging webs out of your arms and climbing stuff. What? <laughs> well, you're called to take up your cross and die. What? But when you have the full picture, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I want to do this. Well, finally, verses 23 through 24, Christ stresses to his disciples, and thus to us as well, that we see in him and his message by the Spirit things which were not seen or revealed by God's prophets and kings of old. I mean, he's, he's really underscoring to them and now to us with the even fuller revelation than they had at that moment in time. He turns to his disciples explicitly in verse 23, and he says, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see, the miracles, the powers, the wonders, the kingdom coming, through Christ, the Word made flesh. Blessed are, your, are, are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. The message of God, the miracles of God, the glory of God in Jesus Christ come to earth was long desired by the faithful prophets and kings of old, and even kings coming from afar to see Solomon's, uh, the queen of Sheba coming to see Solomon's glory and so on, Ultimately, it was God's glory given through them, if you will. But now the real glory has come. The shadows have passed away. The substance of Christ has arrived. He is the Word of God made flesh. God doesn't just reveal himself in some abstract way. He reveals himself as man. The Son reveals the Father perfectly to all who see him, but that perfect glory and revelation only get through, gets through to those who have new hearts and renewed minds by the Spirit to receive this revelation of God. The brightest sun cannot enlighten the blind eye. Only the Spirit gives sight to see Christ as the exact imprint of the Father in human flesh. Christ will give eyes and ears even to kings, Isaiah 52 15 tells us, and the Lord is opening the eyes of people on high and low places. No matter how articulate the tongue, 
how clear the message, how loudly and passionately and powerfully the word of God is proclaimed. If the ears of those hearing it are spiritually deaf, they're dead. They're useless. It won't make any difference. The spiritual eyes and ears are useless and dead until the Spirit makes them alive. This does not impugn Christ's glory. It does not impugn the Word of God, but it shows man's sin and hardness apart from the Spirit. It also shows there's differing ministries. The Word is one thing. The Spirit is another thing. They're differing things, but they are bound to one another. They're almost like two sides of the same coin. There's the Word of God, and then there's the Spirit of God giving us illumination of His Word to help us understand it. You should pray. God, open my eyes. Holy Spirit, give me understanding to know your Word. And then what do you do? You sit there and wait for Him to speak audibly to you what it means? No, you study the Word of God. Trusting the Spirit to help you understand it and see it because this is a spiritual knowledge, a spiritual understanding, a heart knowledge of the Lord, not just a head knowledge. So Christ is saying to his people, his disciples, they are hearing the words of life, the gospel of the kingdom, crushing the powers of Satan, the suffering of the Savior, the resurrection and the glory that is to come. This is being made known to them and to all who hear the words and are called to salvation. These disciples and apostles, according to the world's eyes, they're lowly and poor. But the Father, again, as always, he's chosen them to show his glory, that fishermen and despised tax collectors and others of no prestige, no exalted ones will overcome the exalted ones, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herods, the Pilots. You who are here at Heritage, if you know the Lord truly, you've seen his word, by his spirit, things which no others, none other, has known or seen with the eyes given to you by the spirit. And so the question to you then is, what will you do? What will you do with that sight of Christ, of his glory and kingdom? Will you repent and serve him? Or will you turn from that glory back to sin? Will you, will you halt between two positions? Or will you... Set your hands to the plow and not look back and serve the Lord Almighty. We must pursue that every day as God's people. May we keep our eyes on our Lord's glory and with that sight of him serve him. For in him we are empowered and enlightened to glorify him, to overcome the world's power and wisdom, to destroy the kingdom of Satan and establish more and more the kingdom of God and his will done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray.